Hey, deserving listeners. Today I'm going to answer patron emails. So let's get into it. This first is from patron Lady Ada. She writes, I want to ask you if possibly you could talk about in general or share specific tips on how to survive during the winter season with the gray weather, very short days, pressure of the holidays, etc. I know that you have people listening to your podcast from all over the planet, and possibly the subject will be irrelevant to some, but for us living in the Northwest and possibly other people living in other regions of the world, it would be good to hear what you can share with us. End of email. Yeah, it's a broad topic, uh, hard to talk about in a way that is, you know, addresses everyone's individual issues. You know, people tend to associate this with seasonal affective disorder. You'll hear people kind of throw that around. Uh, seasonal affective disorder is, um, you know, a full-blown disorder. It's, uh, it's like major depression, bipolar. It's no joke. And a lot of people with seasonal affective disorder actually have their mood fluctuation uh, where it takes a downturn in the summer. So seasonal affective disorder just means that you have an affective disorder, a mood disorder that fluctuates with the seasons. It doesn't have to necessarily fluctuate with winter. Often it does, but it doesn't have to. And this has been, uh, it's a small part of the mood disorder spectrum. There are uh, most people who have depression. It doesn't, um, it doesn't uh, fluctuate significantly with the seasons or in a consistent way. So it's a pretty rare thing. And um, so I want to differentiate that from what I think you're talking about, Lady Ada, which is this uh, downturn in your mood or your sort of enjoyment of life during the winter, which isn't seasonal affective disorder. It's just um, dissatisfaction with life or a little bit of distress or something that doesn't rise to the clinical level of seasonal affective or depression. So in these times, people report being less motivated. They feel like there's sort of a dark cloud hanging over them figuratively and in reality. And they might be in a bad mood. They, you know, wish it was summer, this sort of thing. And the research shows that there's a lot of possible factors that play into this. One is um, vitamin D, which people will talk about sometimes. Uh, it's a particularly attractive explanation to a lot of people because people like the biological explanations and the vitamin explanations. It, ha it has been shown to, uh, you know, when you give people vitamin D versus a placebo, for some people with fluctuating moods during the winter months, you will find some effectiveness, some effectiveness but not for everyone. In fact, I would say that for the vast majority, the vitamin D is, is not the problem. Although making sure that you're not vitamin D deficient is something that you want to talk about with your doctor. It could also just be that you like the outdoors and that during the winter time, you just tend not to go outdoors and uh, which, you know, it would appear according to research that we evolved to um, feel at ease when we have contact with nature, whether that means going for a walk outside or going for a hike or having plants inside your office or, having a window that overlooks, you know, the mountains or making sure you're not stuck in the city all day long or in a car all day long. Uh, there seems to be some of that. And so maybe in the summer, you're, you do more of that. You sit out on your porch, you go for hikes, you go for walks more, you go to the beach, and that can affect your mood. Another thing is less sunlight, less light into your eyes and on your skin. 
uh, on your skin that can be related to vitamin D. It could just be related to something that we don't know. Uh, also, light photons hitting our um, you know, eyes will affect our moods, affects our circadian rhythm. It's possible for some people that when it's dark out all the time, their body never realizes it's daytime, and so their body never really wakes up. Um, so sometimes you want to get a real bright light in your wherever you're, you know, hanging out the most, like by your desk at work or something. Uh, sometimes that works for people. Sometimes people exercise less in the wintertime, and that can affect your mood for sure. Um, another one is just negative associations with the holidays. I mean, a lot of people have a lot of traumas in their families, and the holidays remind them of that. And this is a big one. So in the same way that if your mother died um, on your birthday, every time you come up on your birthday, you're going to have complicated feelings about your birthday, right? Well, if you growing up, Christmas time or Hanukkah time or Kwanzaa time or Thanksgiving time or whatever time was associated with conflict, alcohol, distance, loneliness, then as the holidays approach, you're going to uh, be reminded of that potentially, and it's going to put you in a bad mood. The point of all this is that for those of you who struggle with uh, mild to you know severe mood shifts in your winter time, is you got to figure out for yourself what the factors are for you because they're different for everyone. I, I, I did a fair amount of research years ago into the, the clinical literature on seasonal affective. And uh, that was the conclusion is like, there seems to be a lot of roads to the phenomenon and clinicians need to figure out what that, what the road is for a particular individual and apply an intervention. You know, you can't just say, oh, it's vitamin D or, oh, it's light or, oh, it's this, you know, like you have to experiment for yourself. The other thing is, is that, you know, I want to identify another possible factor. And this is something that, you know, is a little victim blamey. So I, I want to put a big asterisk on this one, but I do believe that for some people, this is the case. Some people, I think, choose to see winter time as a bad thing. Um, again, this is victim blamey, but I think it's true for some people. Like for me, I've lived in the Northwest my entire life. So I've been through almost 50 winters and um, the summer is great in Seattle. You know, it's very comfortable, 75 to 85 degrees. It almost never rains in the summer. It's very pleasant except when there are, you know, forest fires for the past few years, that's been pretty bad. But aside from that, it's it's really great. But for, you know, the, the 10 or nine other months, it's like dreary and cold and dark and um, not very inviting to the outside, let's put it that way. But I grew up in the outdoors. We didn't have video games when I was a kid. And so I was outside in the rain, in the mud, in the woods, pretty much all the time. And so for me, I don't associate those environments with something bad. I also just, I remember at an early age, I remember hearing people complain about the winter and I remember consciously saying to myself, well, I can complain about the winter the rest of my life and hate half of the year, or I can just decide that I love the winter. And so I do. I love the winter. I love the rain. I love the hall. I mean, part of it is I don't have any traumas really around the holiday season because my family is great. And so uh, Christmas and Thanksgiving and all that is just associated with joy and togetherness. And, and so, um, you know, I, I'm privileged in that way. 
Um, but I, you know, I love the rain. I love the change in seasons. I love, I love wearing cozy sweaters and jackets. I love when it's actually kind of dark out early. It's interesting to be like, oh my God, it's four o'clock. It's already dark outside. Um, you know, I, I like the nighttime. It's, I don't, I don't, I don't like daylight over darkness, you know, um, they're, they're both good. I, bo- I like them both. There's pros and cons to both. So to me, I think for some people, there's a choice. You can choose to look at winter as like, oh, boy. You know, it's the same thing of when I'm talking to people about, you know, clients about their work or they're going to school or something. You know, say there's a 45-year-old who's going to graduate school. And it was a dream that they always had. But they're in graduate school and they're like, oh, my God, I got to go to class today and I have a paper to write. And I'll be like, well, uh, you know, you're here to work on your mood, but I have to tell you, the way you're framing that is going to guarantee you're going to be in a bad mood about school. Uh, you chose to go to school, correct? Yeah, I chose to go. You you want to go, right? Yeah. You like the school, right? Oh, yeah, I, I like the school. Uh, you want to learn, right? Yeah, I want to learn. Then why are you looking at schoolwork like it's a bad thing? You chose this, my friend. <laughs> you can drop out at any time. This is your choice. Why are you complaining about it, you know? Because culturally speaking, we're taught to complain, and particularly about certain things like the weather and about school, because it's just something culturally that we believe. Uh, Not every culture believes that. Believe me, there are cultures around the world that would rejoice if it's rained as much as it did in Seattle. And uh, there are plenty of people, even in the United States, who love Seattle weather because, you know, it's not as humid as Florida, and it's not as... Uh, you know, uh, tornado prone as, you know, Kansas. And it's not as, uh, doesn't have as many mosquitoes as, as Minnesota does, Northern Minnesota does in the, in the summer. And so uh, they come to Seattle, you know, I, I have a friend from Arizona that loves it in Seattle. And he's just like, yeah, I mean, it gets a little cold, but man, I mean, Phoenix is awful. <laughs> like, uh, I'd rather, much rather have it be this than what it is in Arizona. It's like, you can't even go outside for most of the year. Cause it's, it's like a, like a, another planet, you know? <laughs> um, and so it's a matter of perspective, right? And so if you, if you're going to live somewhere and you're going to, and that's where you're choosing to be, then part of it might be your attitude about it. Um, you know, if you're going to choose to believe that it sucks, then, you know, you're going to believe it sucks and, and it's going to affect your mood. Again, victim blamey, but I, I think it is possible factor. The other thing is, is one can be uh, generally down throughout the year, but you don't really notice it until the winter months. You know, it's possible, Ada, that during the summer, you're not exactly super cheery then either or super unstressed either, but you don't really associate it with the season. You're just sort of like, well, it's because of work or this relationship or something. And then you get to the winter months and you start experiencing that same low hum of stress and, and mood problems. And you're like, Oh, it must be the winter when in fact it's always been around. So it's just another thing to think about. Have you said all that? Have you said all that? Yeah. People absolutely are affected by the seasons. Um, I'm not. So I, I'm, I can't, you know, just say that no one is. I, I, I know people close to me who absolutely are. So how do you cope? Well, again, you have to figure out what works for you. You have to figure out, is it light? Is it exercise? Is it attitude? Is it vitamin D? Is it um, getting outside? You know, you got to figure out for yourself. 
maybe it's even creating a new tradition in the holiday season that is with your chosen family instead of with your family of origin whom you don't have a good relationship with or something. You know, um, th- it's a matter of figuring out what it is for you and taking control, experimentation, and also uh, choosing to ha- live a life that you want to live. And that can be tough for some people, you know, because they might have a lot of learned helplessness. They might cons- be, you know, hope- be hopeless about the situation. So it's a catch-22. In order for life to get better, they have to be not hopeless. But in order for life, in order for them not to be hopeless, life has to get better for them. So, you know, it, it's, it's complicated, but that's what I'll say about that. So let's go on to another email. All right. This next email is from patron Robert. He writes, I have heard you talk about how you believe that most of the issues that people have are based on attachment. However, the DSM-5 doesn't allow for the diagnosis for billing purposes outside of reactive attachment disorder and disinhibited social engagement disorder. How do you diagnose for an attachment issue, or do you often find that it fits into another category that is in the DSM-5? An example, in the movie Goodwill Hunting, Will has an attachment disorder, but one could argue that he has severe trauma that occurred from the abuse he had gone through in his childhood. End of email. Yeah, I'm wondering, did I already answer this question in a previous episode? I'm not quite sure. If I have, I'm sorry for repeating myself. If not, let's get into it. So, yeah, the DSM does not fully encapsulate all of human suffering, not even close. Um, If we're talking about, you know, usually what we're talking about when we're talking about therapy needs, we're talking generally about people who are suffering and and would benefit from talk therapy and, and need talk therapy in order to reduce their suffering somehow or improve their lives somehow. And a lot of the issues that are presented in therapy, particularly with someone like me who focuses on relationships and uh, personality and attachment, a lot of the issues that people come to me with are not easily fit into the categories in the DSM. So um, the other thing to know is that the DSM comes from a time, and it literally comes from the medical field, the Psychiatric Association, but it comes from a long tradition going back, you know, to the 1940s or 30s or something, when attachment theory was not even understood and hadn't been developed. Um, and it takes a long, long time, decades, centuries for things to change. And so in 100 years, will the DSM look different? Uh, it definitely will. Will it incorporate attach, you know, more broad attachment-related distress in need of therapy? Uh, probably. So, yeah, I mean, you, you've identified the two attachment. And a lot of times people, when I talk about attachment, disruption, and this thing, they always think about the DSM, which drives me crazy. It's just like this idea that the DSM is somehow this, like, um, you know, eternal hub of all human experience. It's like it's not. <laughs> I mean, uh, the vast majority of human suffering does not e- uh, exist in the DSM, and do- doesn't the DSM doesn't even uh, come close to uh, describing that. And and the, and the DSM doesn't try. It's it's trying to. It's a it's a it's something for a whole other purpose. But but we do have two in the DSM: reactive attachment and disinhibited social engagement. And these are often related to kids, too. Uh, it's, hard, it's rare that you'll actually find someone uh, apply these labels to an adult. So, um, it's th- so the DSM doesn't talk about attachment 
or it talks, let's say it talks about like 1% of the attachment manifestation issues that one could have. Um, and so, yeah, uh, pa- patron Robert, you're just like, well, if I have a client who has these issues, you know, and I've identified attachment as the problem, uh, but the DSM doesn't provide any labels to describe that, what do I do? Uh, because, you know, for those of you who don't know, in order for insurance to pay for it, you have to provide a medically necessary diagnosis, right? So you got to diagnose them with something. Now, the thing is, I'll say bottom line is for some people, uh, maybe, uh, you know, will hunting included, they don't qualify for a label in the DSM and thus you can't apply one. You know, you just have to say, I'm sorry, I know you're suffering and I want to treat you, but just let you know, you don't qualify for any diagnosis in the DSM and therefore I can't bill your insurance because they're not going to pay for it. I mean, I can bill them and say you don't have a diagnosis, but they're not going to pay for it. So you're going to have to pay out of your pocket or something, or I'm going to have to do pro bono or something. So we just have to recognize that that's the reality. And I don't like that reality, but it it makes it, and I get it on some level. And, uh, you know, a lot of people will say, oh, insurance companies, eh, DSM, you know, but the thing is, is like, we have to draw a line somewhere because uh, insurance is, you know, the, the purpose of insurance is when you pay money into a pool so that when you absolutely need services, you get services. And if everyone pays in the pool, uh, most of the people will not need services at a given moment. And so uh, the money that you're, you know, you're healthy for five years and you don't need therapy, and you, but you pay into the insurance and uh, that money it goes is funneled towards the rare individual who actually really needs the therapy. And when you really need the therapy, then you can start to get those benefits as well. So it's just this, you know, sharing of money. That's all it is. It's not an insurance companies aren't on high going like, ha ha ha, you know, we have, you know, an unlimited fund of money and we're going to pay for this. Obviously, there are politics sometimes related to gender and race that play into this decision making process that is marginalizing and unjust for sure. But the point is, is that uh, there's a limited amount of money and we can't just say that everyone who wants therapy should get it. Because we well, we could say that, but what that would equate to is your premiums would go up. For those of you who live in other countries and you don't even have premiums, you know, you don't even know what we're talking about. But um, so we can make that choice, and we can be like, look, everyone who wants therapy, regardless of whether or not they have a DSM diagnosis, can get therapy. Now, I would love that; I think that'd be great. But what that means is that you know the insurance companies have to come up with that money somewhere, which means they have to raise the rates. And most people don't want to raise the rates. And most people would be like, well, I don't want to pay for someone's there. I don't want to pay and I don't want my rates to go up just so that this insurance company can pay for some people to get therapy when they don't really need it. So there has to be a line somewhere. And the line that we've had for many years is, uh, you know, does does the client qualify for a DSM diagnosis? And can that clinician actually uh, are they qualified to treat that diagnosis? So it makes sense. You know, someone's schizophrenic, they cross the line. If someone has major depression, they cross the line. If someone has panic disorder, it crosses the line. If someone has, you know, substance abuse disorder, it crosses the line. But these other issues, you know, a lot of the issues, you know, every time I've gone to therapy, for the most part, um, I haven't I haven't sought therapy for anything in the DSM. Um, am I seeking therapy for attachment issues? Yeah. Am I seeking therapy for self-esteem? Yeah, but not, these things aren't in the DSM. Uh, 
So what do you do? Well, you have to look for something, right? Um, something legitimate. Uh, but to answer your question, Robert, um, you know, for people who are suffering from a, say they have avoidant attachment and their relationships are going down the tubes. Um, for those people, I just cannot, there's no way, there's nothing in the DSM that comes close to that. Um, the person absolutely needs therapy and will benefit from therapy and is suffering greatly. Um, but the DSM and society just doesn't really care about relational suffering. They mo- they mainly care about what they consider to be you know uh, close as close to medical suffering as you can get. Right? Everyone agrees that if you have cancer or you break your arm, then you deserve care. But what people don't agree on is like, well, yeah, I guess if you have schizophrenia and you have you know clinical depression, as we most colloquially call it, then you deserve treatment. But if you know if your if your marriage is just going down the tubes, you know it's kind of your fault. You don't really deserve therapy. So it's just a matter of cultural privilege and how we frame things and how we shame things, for that matter. So um, like it's not shameful to have a broken arm. It's not shameful to um, have I don't know like a migraine or something, but it, it is shameful in our society to, um, to have your relationship going down the tubes and to be crying yourself to sleep every night. Um, so yeah, it is a conundrum. Now, if we want to change things, we've got to, uh, we, we don't want to yell at the DSM, uh, because it is what it is. Uh, you can certainly try to change the next version. Uh, there are plenty of people who get involved in that effort. Uh, but what, what you really want to do is, change the insurance companies in terms of what they pay for you you got to have some kind of provision in in the insurance maybe they pay half as much or something or they reimburse half as much or something so that people can get therapy for things that are what we call v codes um they're they're in the ds so to be truthful the dsm actually does cover a lot of these things you know relationship issues but they're called v codes Meaning, at least they were in DSM four. Sometimes I, I forget if DSM five. I'm, I mean, I I lived with DSM four for so long that sometimes I forget if if things have been changed and I just don't remember. But anyway, I believe they're in DSM five still. They would call them V codes. So, um, but insurance companies just don't recognize them as quote unquote medically necessary. But we we could decide that, you know. Um, you know, say your um, your your wife dies in an accident, like you get in a car accident and your wife dies right next to you, and you are in deep, deep grief for a long time, but you don't qualify for major depression. Well, you deserve therapy, right? But according to the way I described it, you don't qualify for a medically necessary diagnosis. You could say adjustment disorder in that instance, uh, probably pretty easily. But let's say you don't really qualify for the adjustment disorder because you don't really qual- you know you don't rise to that level. Um, be hard to believe, but you know it's possible. So uh, we, if we want to change it, we have to change the insurance. We have to tell the insurance company to charge us more so that we can allow for everyone to to get um, reimbursed for therapy. That's the solution. But in the meantime, what a lot of people are doing is they're basically fudging and fibbing on the DSM so that people can get therapy. They'll look at a client and be like, well, this person needs therapy. I want to help them. They don't qualify for a DSM diagnosis. I'm just going to make something up. I'm just going to say, well, they qualify. You know, a lot of times adjustment disorders are shoved in there. Uh, generalized anxiety is shoved in there or a uh, unspecified disorder is shoved in there. And I don't think that is what we should be doing. Um, that That is um, unethical, one. It's potentially illegal, 
like fraud. Um, and it doesn't it doesn't do us any good to to do that. You know, if you want to change things, change it. Change the way the system works. Don't don't live in a broken system. If you want to change the system, change the system, you know, and because we all deserve that. All right, let's take a break. and we get back, let's answer some more emails. All right, we're back from the break. If you haven't reviewed us on iTunes, please do so. Uh, eventually, once we get enough iTunes reviews, we're going to read, read them all. So if you want to be read on the air, uh, go to iTunes and fill out the review us situation. Um, I love reading all the one star reviews, um, but don't, you know, don't give us a one star review. To, I'll read all of them. <laughs> I just think the one star reviews are uh, entertaining in a lot of ways. Also, I just want to make sure everyone knows that your money, your patron money has gone towards raising, um, you know, 13 or I don't know, 15, $17,000 for various different philanthropic efforts, scholarships, LGBTQ youth, and LGBTQ uh, um, charities, animal charities, Pet Finder, to be specific, homelessness. Uh, you patrons have raised money, thousands of dollars, to help people, which is just, it's just such a wonderful feeling to have. Also, join us on Facebook and Instagram. The main place where I ha- we have landed as a community is Facebook. This is where I do all the announcements. This is where we play all our games. This is where I throw a lot of things out there and ask people about things. So, you know, go there. There's also the Facebook fan group where I don't go and people can talk amongst themselves. That seems to, it seems to be that's where most of the fans are talking amongst themselves. There's also Discord. We have a Discord channel. Um, so that can be pretty fun as well. Uh, if you want to talk to me, I always go to the Contact Us page on our website. Join us on YouTube Live on Thursdays at 2 p.m., um, also, uh, when you become a patron, know that you don't have to listen to ads. That's kind of cool. Right. And let's see what else that's about it. All right. So let's go on to another email here. We have email patron Ben. He writes, I was just talking with my friend who was diagnosed with narcolepsy and about how detrimental it is to her life. I would love for you to do a deep dive on narcolepsy. I think it is something that not many people know about, but seriously impacts these people in a major way. End of email. Yeah. So this is not my area. It's related to psychology, but it's much more of a neurological medical issue. And if I talked about it, my ignorance would be revealed. Um, The thing I will say about it, uh, because I have uh, worked parallel sort of issues with people, is that we have the stereotypical idea of what narcolepsy is. You know, you're you're sitting in class and boom, you fall asleep. And then boom, you wake up and you're like, what happened? Um, certainly for some people with narcolepsy, it can present that way. But for a lot of people, it doesn't. It's a lot more complicated usually where people will uh, be tired a lot. They'll, they'll have sleep. They'll have a regular sleep. Um, they will, they won't, they'll sleep a lot, but they won't really feel quite rested. They will experience like extreme sleepiness in very quick situations during the day. You know, we've all had that, right? You're, you didn't get much sleep last night. You're in your car and you're, you know, you're just having a really hard time opening your eyes and you feel like half your brain isn't quite working and, you know, We've all had that, so you know, it's something that we can all relate to. For people with narcolepsy, it's just way more consistent and, and independent of 
their uh, general sleep hygiene. So they they could get uh, they could fall you know they could really have a good practice of sleep where they get eight nine hours a night and you know it's at the same time and they don't drink alcohol they don't drink caffeine and they're not stressed out and yet they're still having all these problems with sleep. And so it usually requires a specialist to identify it because, you know, there's a lot of paths to having uh, a lot of fatigue and sleepiness and sleep issues. Uh, It's a very specific condition, neurological condition that one can, that a physician, a expert can diagnose. And so I guess that's what I'll say about that. All right, let's go on to another email. But before I do that, uh, yeah, to address your question, uh, Ben, is... Yeah, it absolutely is massively negatively affecting to people. I mean, just imagine that, just being constantly tired. Um, you know, it'd just be hard to function in life. Uh, and it's sort of depressing to to have this condition. Now, there are treatments, medications, this kind of thing, but sometimes it doesn't work. And, you know, it's it's a big bummer. You know, it's, it's, it's a grief process that people will go through when it you know they have the onset of it i think the onset is usually teenager early adulthood and so a lot of these people had you know were were fine with sleep for a long time and then all of a sudden boom they have this new condition you know it can be a a big loss to their lives very distressing and demoralizing okay this next email is from patron tony tony often joins us on the live shows i'm a 31 year old computer programmer I have taken significant influence from your attachment theory deep dive, which I think is tremendously helpful. I'm aware from my studies that we unconsciously gravitate towards recreating relationships based off our parental relationships and the past. Uh, Repetition, compulsion, schemas, attachment styles, projective identification, and so on. I always aspired to to have a family since childhood. I have a very anxious mother. I daydream about love all day. During my teenage years and 20s, I was friends with older people. I viewed their relationship as secure and happy. However, I was confused by how lonely they seemed. I didn't understand why they felt like male companionship, after all, isn't isn't your wife supposed to be emotionally supportive to you and be like a friend? And isn't the husband also supposed to be supportive of her feelings? Uh, Tony, I'm not quite following the question. Um, but if I was to... Uh, take some guesses to what you're talking about. You, you've always wanted a family, uh, which is, you know, quite normal for a lot of people. And you look at older people and, and you're like, who have families and they seem to have what you want. But from your observation, they don't seem to be very close and they seem to have issues with each other. Um, and you're wondering what's going on there. You know, why are people doing this to each other? Yeah. Um, Again, the it's hard for me to know. It's case by case basis, but in general, uh, it's usually because of repetition compulsion from their own childhood. You know, they were not provided with enough attunement and attachment growing up, and um, they tend to recreate those relationships in their adult life, even if their relationship on paper looks good. Um, so, I think that answers your question. Um, moving down here. Why do relationships self-destruct seemingly out of nowhere? What would drive someone, uh, you know, so earlier in the email, I didn't read it. He talks about how, well, maybe I should read it. Um, A friend of mine moved to a different state for his wife's job, apparently as a way to make her happy. 
She kept making more and more requests, and eventually she decided to divorce. In one case, she said to him in substance, Love is when you give me anything for my career. After the separation, she boasted she had the best sex she had ever had with a man she met on an online dating website. I presume nothing came of this other than terribly hurt feelings, but Christ, why why be so awfully hurtful to your former partner? Why do relationships self-destruct seemingly out of nowhere? What would drive this lady who seemed so nice to become so self-absorbed and so self-destructive? So, uh, you know, obviously I don't know the situation, but based on your description, um, I can see two possibilities. One is, is that, yeah, this woman has issues and is immature or, um, you know, uh, well, immature and doesn't understand that what she's doing hurts other people. You know, when you're immature, you're immature. You're, you have the mind of a younger person and younger people tend to, for good reasons, because they're not, they haven't developed yet. uh, They tend to not really understand that their actions can hurt other people's feelings. Um, not as much as adults can. And this extends way into adulthood. You, you will find, I, have, I find, that 50-year-olds have much more empathy than 35-year-olds have, who have much more empathy than a 25-year-old. So throughout our life, we're developing what I, you know, for most people, more and more empathy for other people. More and more understanding of like, oh, I know what that pain feels like. When you're 25, it's harder to know that because you maybe have experienced less pain. I don't know. But... The uh, So it's possible that this woman was immature and is still growing up and acts selfishly because of that. The other possibility is that you and your friend are um, perceiving the situation as if she's very selfish when she's actually not as selfish as the way you think she is. Um, it's hard to go through a breakup and it's, you know, it's hard to watch your friend go through a breakup. And there could be things that she's doing that you're framing as her being a terrible person, but you know, maybe when you, if you really knew the full situation from her point of view, it it may, it all makes sense. I don't know. You know, I don't have enough details. Um, but you know, uh, that would be a possible thing there. There's also, you know, personality problems that people will have, um, that will lead to, you know, being self-absorbed, so to speak, and, and careless of other people's feelings. Uh, you ask, is there any advice you have for what we should look for in a partner? What should we avoid? Any dating or relationship pitfalls? Um, you know, that's tough to generalize. Um, you know, uh, what should you look for? Well, you should look for someone that's compatible with you. You should look for someone that you love. You got to love someone. I mean, depending on your values, you got to like them. You got to respect them. You should look for someone who treats other people well. You should look for someone who has relationships in their life that seem to be going well. I mean, that's a tough one because sometimes circumstances prevent that from happening. But in general, if someone has friends and, and they're close to you know other people and they've had long relationships with people that have been sustained, that's a good sign, but it's not necessarily you know what you're going to... Uh, bank on um, but mainly you know what you should look for is does the person care and does can the, does the person have the capacity for empathy for you and do the two of you uh, have empathy and understanding for each other you know I think Tony I've, I've heard other questions for you I think 
I think part of your issue, if I might be so bold, is that you've been harmed in the past and you don't have a lot of trust in other people and you've been hurt and you've seen a lot of hurt and you're like trying to figure out like, well, how I want a family. I want a relationship. Uh, you know, what's, I've seen a lot of bad things happen. And I think if I remember right, Tony, you often genderize your questions. You often will see women, you know, you'll ask questions like, why are women so blank? And it's just like, I, I always reframe it as like, well, women aren't the only people like that. Everyone's like that. So um, I'll answer the question is, you know, why are, why is everyone have the capacity for blank? So, you know, you have that propaganda either getting into you from the internet or it's a natural internal propaganda that you're telling yourself that women are different than men in this way. Uh, I be- believe me, there are an equal amount of 31 year old women who are lonely and wondering why men are so blank. So uh, it, it's a universal thing. It has nothing to do with gender. Believe me. I know that the internet says different. You're just going to have to believe me. I don't even know if this is your issue, but, uh, if, uh, but the way you're asking these questions seems to illuminate that. And that doesn't mean that these past women were not terrible people. It just means that you've only been exposed to terrible women. And if you were a heterosexual woman, you would have a shit ton of experience with terrible men. All you got to do is ask a, you know, a 30 something, 40 something woman who has been on the dating scene for a while about her perceptions of men. And she will tell you, oh, my God, let me tell you stories about these terrible men who don't care and they use people for sex and they have no personality and they're inconsistent, you know, because dating's hard. Dating is fucking rough, man. <laughs> like it is hard. And the, the thing, the reason why it's hard is because the rom-coms always make it seem so easy. It is not easy. Uh, tr- trying to find someone who is, especially in today's world when we're really looking for a soulmate, right? It is hard. It's, it is so hard to find someone who matches you perfectly <laughs> or perfectly enough. You know, in the old days, you just got set up with someone, you just made it work. Uh, and being in love with that person was not a prerequisite. And in and, and a lot of part of the countries, it's still that way. A lot of part of the world is still that way. Um, there's a reason for that. Because if you waited for everyone to fall in love... Well, you're going to be 45 and still on Tinder. So, uh, so if you want to if you want to find a soulmate, you're, exp- you're you have very high expectations. You're essentially trying to win some sort of mini lottery. Now, it doesn't mean it's not going to happen, but it means you have to roll the dice a lot of times, which means you have to date a lot of people, which means that you have to tolerate a lot of difficulty and rejection and weird people. So. Uh, and when people bump up against that, they're just like, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with people? What's wrong with women? What's wrong with men? What's wrong with Tinder? And the fact is, is that there's nothing wrong with any of that. It's just that you have extremely high expectations, which is fine. And you want a soulmate and you want that all around person who you have the same interests and you have sex in the wonderful way. And you both are very attracted to each other. You're both very in love with each other. You both love to go antiquing on the weekends and everything is perfect. You both want kids. You both want the same pets. You both want to live in the same town. You both work at the same sort of industry or whatever. Um, which is fine. You know, uh, you want that, but understand that, uh, it's like you're playing darts with a blindfold. You're, you're going to hit the bullseye uh, eventually. It could be the very first time, but it could be like the 500th time. 
So, you know, like Bob, for example, he comes to the podcast and he's talked about this in the podcast, so I'm not revealing anything he doesn't want to reveal on the internet. But when he went, when he was single 20 or 15 years ago and I, you know, was hanging out with him and getting updates on his dating thing, this is when online dating first kind of got into the swing of things. He went on dates with hundreds of women before he met his, the love of his life, Colleen. And I was with him every step of the way. <laughs> it was, and he'd just be like, well, yeah, another date tonight. Another, you know, we'll see if this one works. And that's what he did. You know, he had, it was a numbers game. It's a, uh, and if he got discouraged after five, well, he never would have met Colleen. So uh, it, it's, it, if you have high expectations, which is fine, you got to expect that it's, it might take a lot of, time and effort and a lot of false starts, if you will. I don't know if that applies to you, but, you know, but advice. So that, that's the general advice I would have is, you know, uh, dating relationship pitfalls is to have really high expectations and thinking it's going to happen like a rom-com, like it's going to happen right away. It could be five, 10, 15, 20, 30 years before you meet that person. But if, if you have those high expectations, which is fine, just know that it's going to take a while. Um, other things, pitfalls that I see people do, um, not being honest, you know, like you date someone and they seem to be falling in love with you and you kind of know that and you're not really in love with them back, but you don't really know what to do. And so you just ghost them. Uh, you know, just tell people, look, you know, so uh, I can feel you're getting a little intense with me, which is fine with me, but I just want to like, let you know, I'm, I'm still not, I'm still kind of in the probationary period with you. You know, I don't know if that hurts your feelings, but, um, you know, I, I like you and I, I want to give this a try, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm not ready to kind of take it to the next level the way that you seem to be doing, you know, just be honest, uh, because you don't want to hurt people. You don't want to give people the wrong impression. Um, you know, uh, also, uh, don't play fucking games. Um, and by games, I mean like, you know, I got a impressor by acting this way, or I have to neg her, or I have to, you know, only kiss her on the third date. Got to keep her guessing. You know, that it's all, that's all bullshit. Um, and plus if a relationship is based on such silliness, like it's not a good beginning. <laughs> now there are certain things. If you have a hard time with social situations, you want to follow, like, if you tend to be really pushy at the beginning, you want to uh, watch that, um, which one could consider kind of a game, I guess. I don't know. Uh, you go on to say, I don't know if I'm making any sense. <laughs> I don't know if that rant made any sense. It was just a lot of crap, really. I mean, the bottom line is is dating is awful. It's hard. It's demoralizing. It's not like a rom-com. It is, um, it's, it's ego shredding. It's depressing to a lot of people um so you just have to you just have to do it in spurts when you can take it but you gotta expect it to be what it will likely be which is the way that it is and when it is the way that it is you won't be disappointed <laughs> going on with your email on the live show you briefly talked about milestones in a relationship for example the seven years can be a hard time in a marriage and a one year and and a new one that's only one week into the relationship and three months etc can we hear more about that are there any common things that can happen during these milestones um 
So researchers looked into this, and there's not a lot of evidence that there are seven-year itches and all that kind of stuff. But I have found that, in general, there are certain milestones that you can generally apply to every developing couple. Like, there's a, um, you know, the first time you really kind of are yourself, where you're farting in front of your partner or something. Some people, that's 50 years into the relationship. Some people, it's one week. Some people, it's the first day. So there's that those kind of milestones. There's also uh, milestones in general that I've seen. You know, the seven-year itch thing, I think, is is kind of real for many couples. It's not necessarily seven years, but it's in that time zone, like five to ten years, where... You know, a typical course for a, a couple, it's not doesn't apply to all, but a typical course is you meet, you at some point, whether it's right away or within a few months, you start to intensely fall in love with the person. You think about them all the time. You see them, you smile, you hug, you kiss, you want to cuddle, you want to have sex a lot. You know, it's very, very lovey. Well, that will often uh, last for a while. You know, maybe it's six months, maybe it's three years, you know, somewhere in that range. And then things start to kind of cool down a little bit in terms of the intensity of your, um, you know, passion for the other person. And this seems to be evolutionarily linked. It's hard to know, of course, but it kind of makes sense, right? For um, our early species and our cousins, the bonobos and chimps to be motivated to mate, there has to be some kind of instinct and some kind of great pleasure from actually, you know, seeking out a partner. And so it makes sense that we would have this, um, this jolt of, you know, in wonderful neurotransmitters that uh, we are given when we're in the presence of our chosen mate. Um, this helps us to bond. It helps us to make sure we have kids because we have sex a lot. It makes us uh, more likely to raise our kids well because, you know, we care about each other and we care about our kids. And so uh, this makes sense. It also kind of makes sense. It's hard to know, but it kind of makes sense that you can't really sustain that forever. One, because uh, things tend to regulate back to the the average, the, you know, regression to the mean. But also because um, once the child is of a certain age, you don't necessarily have to be obsessed with each other. You know, um, it's it, a similar thing could be said about children, right? A lot of parents out there, if you're a parent out there, you, you, you know this is true about you. When you first have the baby, you know, depending on any kind of postpartum depression or something, you tend to be just enamored with your infant, right? You just want to hug your infant and look at your infant and... You know, every noise that your baby makes is just like the best thing in the world. The way the baby smells and the way, you know, the first time the baby grabs onto your finger and breastfeeding and all of that is just it, all you want to do is just live with your baby. Right um, now, it's not all the time. You can be very stressed out by the baby and very annoyed by the baby at times. It's not all fun and games, but there's just that there's, you know, there seems to be an instinct that kicks in for uh, everyone. It's not just women. It's, it's for everyone, uh, that, um, around infants. Well, by the time they're two, that starts to wane. You know, we start to look at two-year-olds. We still love our two-year-olds, but you know, sometimes they annoy us by the time they get to four, 
Now we're like, God, do you want to play another game? You know, when they're one and a half and, and the kid wants to play a game with you, you're elated. You know, again, this is generally speaking. You're like, oh, my God, I'm playing a game with, you know, this 18-month-year-old child. But now they're five and they're bugging you to play Battleship and you're just like, oh, another, I don't want to play. There seems to be an instinctual thing from adults, uh, whether they're parents or not, <laughs> where it's just like certain ages where we just feel compelled to, you know, be there. And as the child ages, we were less compelled, um, not for every, you know, parent child uh, dyad, but I think most of us can relate to that. Um, so one could say that we have a similar progression in our intensity and attraction and, and compulsion uh, towards our uh, sexual rant- romantic partners. Uh, that in the beginning, you need to be intensely interested so that you make sure you have a baby. You have to sustain that interest for a while to make sure that the baby is taken care of during the most vulnerable times and that the most people are, you know, are, are there to help. And then after a while, you know, it's less necessary that the couple are uh, passionate towards each other. Uh, because by you know by the time you're seven ten years into the relationship, um, in the olden days, you probably already had like five or six kids, um, and you know half of them survived into adulthood, which is per- perfectly fine for the continuation of the species. So, um, so it kind of makes some sense. But having said that, there are plenty of couples that fall more in love at the you know seven year mark, the ten year mark and sustain that new relationship energy for 50 years. So it's not universal, but, um, you know, it kind of makes some sense. Uh, so that's what, and there's other little milestones too, right? Like um, uh, if you've, people out there, if you've been in enough relationship, you can, in enough relationships, you can kind of identify it, right? Um, like when you're in love with someone in the first three months, it's a different kind of love where, uh, generally speaking, where you're very much in love and you're very much infatuated potentially and you're very much interested in the other person and you very much like the other person. But you don't really know the other person truly yet. And you're also potentially not being yourself really around the other person yet. And so later on, you know, at the two-year mark, maybe you're more yourself a little bit. You're more relaxed. You're more sort of who you really are. And so is your partner. And so the passion is is different at that point. Um, so there, you know, there's little milestones like that too. Anyway, you go on. Any advice you would give to someone who is 30 years old looking to make the right choices, finding the right partner? What can I do to support my partner? Am I supposed to have attunement similar to a good parent? Um, oh, so those are kind of different questions. Um, so advice to give someone 30 looking... T- you know, the right choices to finding the right person for a partner. I think I've already kind of talked about that. But to answer your last question, you know, are you supposed to be attuned to someone similar to a good parent? Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, not in a parental way, but in a in an equal way, right? You're you're at an equal level with your partner. So you don't you don't talk down to them uh, the way that a parent would to a child. Uh, but yeah, you're attuned. Um, you notice the other person's state and you act appropriately. Uh, they're tense and you notice that and you attend to that. You are sad and your romantic partner notices that and tends to it. Um, sometimes tending to it, just saying it, oh, you seem tense, you know, are you okay? Or you seem sad today. Uh, how you doing? Uh, that's attunement. So yeah, 
you uh, couple good, you know, couples that sustain their relationships are absolutely um, better at being attuned to each other's uh, emotions, and which means noticing and acting appropriately to it. Okay, let's read another email. All right, this last email is from Roxana. They write, I have a question for you about a close relationship with my friend. If I were to say it's complicated, that would be an understatement. In a nutshell, the closer we become, he starts to push me away and he becomes sad and angry with himself. This has happened a lot and it's so confusing because I do love him. What is going on with my friend? So I like this uh, primarily because it's a very short email with a very short question. (laughs) Um, But yeah, okay, so you're talking about how you have a friend who will push you away and afterwards he's like, oh, I'm so angry at myself for pushing you away. And, um, you know, you're like, why does my friend do this in this cycle? Push me away and then beat himself up. Um, There are a lot of different uh, possible reasons for that. Um, You know, insecurity being one, repetition compulsion being another, um, a sort of compulsion to, uh, you know, he might have grew up with a very critical sort of um, mean parent and he either manifests that by, you know, repeating the relationship by being mean to you. And then when that becomes too, when that goes too far and he's faced with being alone, he suddenly uh, realizes that he can't sustain that because he doesn't want to be alone. So then he turns the meanness upon himself and beats himself up. That's probably the most likely uh, conceptualization that I would probably find with someone like that. You know, essentially it's like you grow up, you have someone mean in your life who is mean to you and you internalize that relationship. So you internalize both the mean person, which becomes a part of your personality. So you become mean and you internalize the self, which is the person who was being mean to you know, the victim of the meanness. And you are, you know, compelled to recreate that and externalize that relationship. So the way that he does it uh, at the beginning of the cycle is that you are him as a child, meaning you are, you feel as if he's being mean to you and he's being his father or his mother or someone and he's being the mean one. Then, like I said, when it comes to a critical point, he's going to lose you. He can't tolerate that because no one can really tolerate losing good attachments so some's got to give and so he switches the script and now he himself is the victim of the meanness and he embodies the meanness himself and you might actually embody the meanness he might actually invite you into the projective identification by wanting you to get mean at him and maybe even find that sometimes that um, he almost wants you to you know chastise him for pushing you away earlier or something and so then you become the mean one or and or he embodies the meanness himself in his mind while he beats up another part of himself. So that's the way I would conceptualize it. It's, you know, there's other explanations too, but without having more information, I don't really know what more to say. All right. Well, that does it for that episode in which I answered questions about um, different things <laughs> from from patrons, which is always enjoyable. So if you want to send a question, go to psychologyseattle.com and, uh, you know, submit questions via the Contact Us page. Also, you can ask questions during the YouTube Live. A lot of people will do that Wednesday or Thursdays at 2 o'clock Seattle time. Um, you can always submit a question there. That, that's where I prefer you do it because I can just answer your question right away. Um, also, if you do submit a question, try to keep it brief because 
Um, some people send me literally pages and pages and pages, and I've gotten to a point where I, I don't have time to read all of it. Um, so that makes me feel bad. <laughs> um, so if you can kind of keep it brief, that will make it much more likely for me to answer. Um, even right away, you know, like that day, I might answer you right away. So uh, please do that. And please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do. 